Today we are continuing in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to read just three verses, verses 9 through 11 from 1 Timothy chapter 4, and then we will talk about them. Starting at verse 9, it, and that it word refers to the statement that disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness is profitable for all things. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And as you may recall, we began talking about that last Sunday. I want to talk a little bit more about it today. Verse 10, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you do speak, and that you speak to us. Thank you for your word, for the Holy Spirit, for the intellect that you've given us to grasp what the word and the Holy Spirit and you are speaking and saying to us. I pray that we would grasp these things today that we're going to present and that they would at least invite us to be more of what you've saved us to be. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So going back to verse 9, it, remember, is the statement from verse 8, that disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness is profitable for all things. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. And the point here is that the benefits of an intentional, disciplined, and continuous pursuit of godliness are real. They're real benefits. And you can depend on experiencing them. In addition, they far exceed the benefits of any form of intentional, disciplined, and repeated physical exercise or celibacy or restricted diets. Godliness exceeds in its benefits and rewards and those things. Why? Because godliness gives you mental, emotional, social, spiritual health. And that, in turn, enables you to live the most sensible, well-rounded, satisfying, and peace-filled life possible in our world, which is even more messed up than it probably used to be. Although I would guess... This world has had cycles where it's really messed up or certain areas are really messed up and then they're better. We in our own country are increasingly messed up. However, the benefits of godliness are not confined to this world, to this life. You will find that a serious pursuit of godliness in this life builds into you a longing for eternity. One of the things that has intrigued me for years is that we come to faith in Jesus Christ in order to spend eternity in heaven with God. 
And yet we in this country, most of us, have no interest in going there any sooner than we have to. And we find all the reasons possible to stay here as long as we can. And uh, the prospect of going there is not looked on as a reward, but as uh, just loss of life. Uh, It's more of a loss than a gain. And that is pretty sad. But you will find that as you pursue godliness in this life, it builds into you a genuine longing for eternity. Eternity with God. And it prepares you to experience the best eternity with God has for you. And that raises the question, at least for me, if godliness is this rewarding, if it pays off this much in this life and the next, not just in the next, but here and now, if it is this rewarding, why then doesn't every Christian pursue it with zeal? Why not? Why do some Christians treat godliness as a restrictive lifestyle built on old-fashioned ideals and grandma's morality? Or why do some Christians treat godliness as if it is only or mostly measured by the externals of the Christian life, such as the kind of church you attend? or the theology you adhere to, or regular involvement in the activities and programs of the church, or reading your Bible, praying, and tithing. Why do we kind of restrict godliness to those things, or think of those things as the apex of the best manifestations of godliness? One of the things that I often think of when talking with people that look at godliness this way is, but I would guess, you know, you go home, you have a home you go to, and if you're married or you have parents and siblings, you probably want to be treated well in that home. Shouldn't godliness affect you as well? Shouldn't you treat everybody else well in that home? Not many of us, in my finding, actually think about those kind of things when it comes to godliness. And then there are those in the Christian community who treat godliness as an option. After all, we have imputed righteousness, so earthly, practical, realistic righteousness is not that important or not that necessary. God will forgive us and we'll get into heaven. In my experience with myself and with others, and I admit I'm a small fish in a tiny pond, so it's not like I know everybody in the world. But in my experience, the primary reason godliness is not treated as seriously as it ought to be is what I call double-mindedness, and the Bible calls it that as well. Christians want the best possible life in eternity, which is the reason many become a Christian. You don't want to go to hell, you want to go to heaven. Well, of course, I want the best possible life in eternity, so I become a Christian for that reason. But many Christians also want the best possible life now, which is why they merge their Christianity with their love of the world and their desire for some of the pleasures of the flesh. 
It is not a common mindset or attitude within the Christian community to see hardship, difficulties, trials as profitable for you. We look at those things as pains in life, as things to get out of, as things to get away from, as things to get relief of. And yet, according to the scriptures, those are things that help transform us. So we are double-minded. We want the best possible life now as well as in eternity. And the best possible life now from the human perspective is not the hard life, but the easy life. One of the things that stands out to me about the three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness is all three offer him a shortcut. A shortcut to where God was taking him. An easier path. And I look at that story, and for me, that speaks to human nature. The devil was tempting human nature at its core. We want the easier path. We want the shortcut. We want the quicker way, not God's way. That's double-mindedness. And yet John cautions us about this double-mindedness in 1 John chapter 2. Verses 15 to 17, where he writes, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, these things are not from the Father, but they're from the world, and the world is passing away. It's temporary. Just like my life is temporary. Your life is temporary. And also the world's pleasures, the world's desires, its lusts. These things that gratify our worldly desires are also temporary. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. James goes one step further and urges us to get rid of double-mindedness by purifying our heart. And the heart is the home of our desires, our longings, our attitudes. And it is out of those things that come our words and deeds. Out of the heart proceeds these things. James 4.8 talks about purifying our heart to get rid of double-mindedness. And a portion of scripture that I want to bring in today because it It provides direction for us. You know, how do we go from where we are to where we ought to be in terms of genuine godliness? And uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 11 provides a kind of stair step or ladder. Uh, I've been reading through with a couple of other gentlemen um, The Ladder of Divine Ascent by John Climacus. And this that Peter writes is like that ladder of divine ascent. You start in the first rung or the first step and you keep going higher and higher. So here's what Peter writes. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. May we grow in our understanding and knowing of God, not just knowing him personally, but knowing what he's like and what he's after and why he does what he does, why he is the way he is. Now, we may not get very far in that, but we can make some progress, some serious progress in getting to know God and to know our Lord Jesus Christ. 
seeing that his divine power, and this is the reason to do it, his divine power has granted to us everything, not some things, not most things needed, but everything pertaining to life and godliness. And that comes to us through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. The more we understand about God, the more we know him, the more we know his ways, the more we know why he says what he says and why he does what he does, the more we can experience all that he has provided for us because we will take hold of it. It's there, but we have to want to take hold of it. And you see the reason to take hold of it, the reason to apply it in your life, the more you know him. Verse 4, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. So he's not only given us everything necessary for life and godliness, but he's also added on top of that promises. Promises that are magnificent, precious. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. That's his nature. Yeah, we may never have his full nature in us. I guess that's impossible. We're humans, he's God. But we can be a partaker of that. We can enter into at least some of that. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Verse 5. This starts the stair step or the ladder. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence. It takes work. You've got to be diligent. In your faith, so that's where we start, we come to God by faith. In your faith, supply moral excellence. Or in other words, become as morally excellent, correct, right as you can be. Supply moral excellence to your faith. And as you're working at that, and by the way, don't see this as I have to do this first and then I move on to that. This is kind of a merging together of the whole string of things but you will have to work through it in a way as Peter is saying so in your face apply moral excellence in your moral excellence knowledge so we want to keep growing in knowledge we want to keep seeking to understand God one of the things that we have at our hands is the the ability to ask God for wisdom and we can ask him for wisdom to understand him to know what he's really like. To understand why he's doing what he's doing. Some of these things may always be a mystery, but again, not everything has to remain a mystery. Not everything has to stay out of our reach when it comes to the knowledge of God and the knowledge of his word and the knowledge of why this and why that. And in your knowledge, supply self-control or self-discipline. And in your self-control, add perseverance. You have to stick at this. This is not a one-week. This is not a seminar. This is not a four-year college education. This is not uh, 12 years of uh, pre-college school. This is a lifetime. You've got to persevere. And there's a lot of things to knock us off track, to attract our attention in other directions. And in your perseverance, add godliness. Well, what's the difference between godliness and moral excellence? Godliness affects not just your outward behaviors, 
But even the way you think and the attitudes that you hang on to and the desires that are in your heart that the rest of us never even see, but they're there. It affects what we can't touch, the rest of us from the outside, but you know about on the inside. And those things ultimately affect the way we treat the people around us. And in your godliness supply brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness we finally get to love. And then Peter explains why all of this. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you useful and fruitful. That's not how he says that. I'm just paraphrasing for your sake. It renders you useful and fruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. If you want to understand that phrase, read Romans 6, and it will explain it to you. Having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent Be all the more diligent to make certain. Notice those words. Be diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. We, probably all of us, start mixed-motived, double-minded. We are wanting to go in two directions at the same time. But as Peter points out here, if we will progressively climb this ladder, work our way up these stairs, we can get to the place where we are single-minded and headed in one direction. And that has its own rewards. And they are much better than any rewards we would get from physical self-discipline. So to summarize, godliness is profitable. It's advantageous. It's beneficial for all things because it brings about many good things in this present life and also in the life to come. Verse 10. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, prescribe and teach these things, which is verse 11. Though most of us are not in recognized positions of ministry, verses 10 and 11 provides four things that we all ought to consider, at least in my opinion. First, it is important to promote and nurture godliness in yourself and in others. Second, there's a significant difference between the living God and imaginary man-made gods. Third, the phrase, God is the Savior of all men, especially believers, requires at least some explanation because we can use that explanation in talking to others about our faith in God and the truths of God. And fourth, in talking to family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, strangers, fellow believers, we can and should bring into our conversations the importance of godliness, 
the differences between our living God and imaginary man-made gods, and the fact that though Jesus died for all, only those who repent, believe, and live accordingly are given the gift of eternal life. So we're going to look at those four things, and we'll begin with the first one, which is, it is important to promote and nurture godliness in yourself and others. Both are necessary. This is not about promoting godliness in others or just in yourself. It's both. So it is important to promote and nurture godliness in yourself and others. This, in my opinion, all comes back to love. If I love Barbie, which, by the way, I do. Well, you could ask her if I do. If I love Barbie, then I must also love the people that her behavior affects. My love should not end with Barbie. It should include anybody her behavior affects. And so if I am talking with her and she's doing something that hurts somebody else and I'm part of this conversation, then if I love, it is incumbent upon me, it is required of me, in my opinion, that I say something to her about the behavior that she is expressing that is hurting other people. This is not just a conversation to, to, you know, listen to and talk about. I need to love the people she loves. And that means promoting and nurturing godliness in myself, yes, and in her. I've said in the past that I believe the pursuit of godliness is our most important pursuit once we repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I've already mentioned a number of reasons why it is such an important pursuit. But let me just bring in a few more things that I didn't mention in more specific ways. The pursuit of godliness kills off pride and arrogance. I know about both of those only too well. And it replaces these deadly evils with godly humility, compassion, mercy, tenderness, and forgiveness. It kills off irrational fears. It calms our natural fears. And it nurtures godly courage. It produces inward peace and a settled joy which enables us to remain peaceful and joyful regardless of the circumstances. It makes us sensible, believe it or not. The pursuit of godliness can make you sensible. It makes us sensible and gives us wisdom for daily living. It shows us how to love as love is supposed to be shown. It removes double-mindedness. It transforms our thinking. It guides our speaking. It conforms our behavior to the likeness of Jesus Christ. I have been truly helped by God's grace to come across at least two really good books on communication. And... Uh, Those books were an answer to my prayer, asking God to explain to me how to make sense of James chapter 3 about the tongue in a way that's practical and realistic. How do I talk to people? Pursuit of godliness will change the way we talk to people. 
It's the result, the outcome. The pursuit of godliness reinforces personal integrity. You can't pursue godliness without having at least some personal integrity. I use the term personal integrity because to me it means a personal honesty, honesty with myself about myself. It's very easy for me to be honest with you about you. I can see very clearly into your life. The question is, will I look just as clearly into my own? When I memorized Romans chapter 12, at some point I got to verse 9. And here's what verse 9 says. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. And as I pondered just that one statement out of Romans chapter 12, I realized that it was much easier for me to abhor evil in your life than to abhor it in my own. Oh, I could admit I was a bad guy. I could admit what I did was sin. But abhorrent? I had to admit to God, you know, I was doing stuff that I really loved and he abhorred. That's pretty awful. Now, I mean, I can tell you, you're doing stuff that God abhors and looks like you love it. You should stop doing that. Will I tell myself? That's personal integrity. Will I be honest with myself about myself? in light of who I really am. The pursuit of godliness reinforces personal integrity. And in the church, godliness promotes and protects the message. It protects the spiritual health of the church. It promotes the unity of believers. It protects and promotes the practice of spiritual gifts. And they need protection as much as promotion because they can get out of hand really easy. It promotes proper care for the poor and needy. It promotes the activity of evangelism and missions and the building up of the body of Christ to a level of Christian maturity that is equal to the maturity of Jesus Christ. My goal as your pastor has been and continues to be to promote godliness in you. It has been my personal goal to promote it in myself. But what I'm presenting you with today is my hope for you is that you will work at promoting godliness in yourself and in the lives of those around you. The second truth from verses 10 through 11 deals with the difference between the living God and imaginary man-made gods. Down through history, people have created gods in their imagination. They've thought up things that could be gods, and they've written about them in their stories. You only have to read old Greek literature. It's full of stories about the gods. We've handcrafted idols. Not you and I necessarily, but people have. People have worshipped, created things like the sun, animals, or ancestors. And they've treated inanimate objects as gods. Of all the gods mankind has created, most are figments of their imagination. Many are inanimate. And of the few that are alive, think about this, none are superior to those who worship them. If you worship an animal, if you worship 
some other living creature, be it on earth or in the sea. It is not superior to you, and yet you're worshiping at it as if it were God, the supreme being. And yet it's not superior to you. And yet, even now, many worship false gods or idols as if they are superior to us. And when I say that many worship false gods or idols, even now, I'm not speaking of our uh, of people in other parts of the world. I'm speaking of our own country, the U.S. So think about this. We worship money. We worship science. We worship the healthcare system. We worship pharmaceuticals. We worship our system of government. And some of us even worship politicians. And it ought to be obvious that there are numerous and significant differences between the living God and the imaginary man-made gods. But for today, I only want to point out two. And interestingly, one of them was mentioned during worship. One of the differences is that the living God was neither created nor can he die. He is eternal in both directions. He has no beginning, no end. Nothing is superior to him. Nothing can constrain or limit him. He is all wise. No one is wise enough to counsel him. Everything that exists exists because he created it and sustains it. He is supreme, genuinely, fully. Paul affirms this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's one difference. The second difference that I want to point out today between the living God and imaginary man-made gods is that the living God speaks. He's spoken in the past, and he speaks today. We know this because of what he has said about what would happen in prophecy And it has happened. Some of what he said in the Old Testament law still affects how we live as Christians today. He spoke, and it is still influencing our lives today. And some of what he currently says convicts us, leads us, imparts wisdom to us, comforts us, and gives us insight and understanding about the scriptures and about life. He speaks. Only the living God speaks. Only the living God is superior to us. The third thing we ought to consider in verses 10 through 11 is the phrase, God is the Savior of all men, especially believers. It's an interesting statement. Maybe you've already got the answer, and that's fine, but I just want to go over it. We are considering this phrase because... It's easy to misunderstand it. How can he be the savior of all men and especially believers? Well, I think we can use this information when we are talking to unbelievers especially. At first reading, this may seem like a strange thing to say, and yet in light of the New Testament, 
It makes good sense. For example, in 1 Timothy 1.15, we read that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, which implies everyone. Isn't everyone a sinner? For all have sinned. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what he came for. Everyone. In 1 Timothy 2.4, it says that God desires all men, not some men, all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, again implying everyone. In other words, Jesus died for all sinners, but only some repent, believe, live accordingly, and receive the gift of eternal life. John 3.16, in my opinion, affirms this. For God so loved who? The world. That implies everyone. That he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, well that implies less than everyone. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And in John 3.36, John the Baptist is confirming John 3.16, where he says, he who believes in the son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Jesus Christ came to be the Savior of even those who do not obey him. So, he's the Savior of all men. It's available to everyone, but only those who repent and believe receive the gift of eternal life. The fourth thing that I want to talk about comes from verse 11. Prescribe and teach these things. The word prescribe is a stronger word than teach, and it implies commanding or requiring those you are talking to to take what you're saying very seriously. Now, I am not presenting this to the parents today. This is not about how you talk to your children. This is about talking to other adults. So keep that in mind as we work through this. Now, Because most of us are not in a position of authority over the rest of us in our church, I want to apply verse 11 in a general way to all of us, minus the commanding or requiring part. In talking to the people around us, again, whether it's family members, adults, friends, neighbors, co-workers, strangers, fellow believers. The point is, is that we can and should bring into our conversation the importance of godliness. We should, when it fits, when it's necessary, bring into our conversation the difference between our living God and imaginary man-made gods, which includes the things I listed, money, science, Uh, the medical system, pharmaceuticals, etc. And we should, when it's appropriate, bring into the fact that Jesus died for all. But his death and resurrection is only helpful, useful, applicable to those who repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now obviously there's a lot more to talk about than these things, and I Understand that? And I'm not asking you to confine your conversation to these kind of things. What I'm wanting to get across to you is 
we should be talking to each other and to the people around us about things like this. People say all kinds of things to us. And those comments can open the door to talking about things like this. So as you listen to what the person is saying, consider how you can bring into the conversation the kind of truths that can help them come to know God, come to know God better, come to live for God in a better way. Let us prescribe and teach these things, so to speak. I want to conclude by reading Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. And I know that this portion was written to those in leadership in Israel, and the essence of the message uh, can be pointed only at them, but I want us to consider what the essence of the message is for ourselves. So listen carefully as I read it, and I will reinforce the essence. Ezekiel chapter 3 Starting at verse 17, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. So how does that fit us? Well, we're in conversations often with a number of people and we can bring things up that will help them rather than just having small talk. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you do not warn him or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. In other words, you will bear some responsibility for his dying in his sin because you refuse to speak up. Yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. You're no longer responsible for what has happened to him because you did speak up. Again, when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity, and I place an obstacle before him, he will die. But if you have not warned him, He shall die in his sin, and his righteous deeds which he has done shall not be remembered. They'll have no effect, but his blood I will require at your hand. In other words, if you had the opportunity to speak up and warn him, and you didn't, you didn't bring these kind of things into the conversation, and he dies, and he dies in his sin, then you bear some of the responsibility for that. However, verse 21 if you have warned the righteous man that the righteousness uh, that the righteous should not sin and he does not sin, he will surely live because he took warning and you have delivered yourself. Speaking up, at least in my opinion, and I am holding this opinion as it should be yours too. Speaking up is not a choice. It's an obligation. It's an obligation of love. Love for God. And love for the person who needs to hear the truth. And love for the people that person affects. Speaking up is not a choice, it's an obligation. And though some of us are better at this than others, and I'm acknowledging that, all of us can do our part, whether it be speaking up ourselves, 
or getting someone else to speak for us, be it a person, an audio file, a book, or the Bible itself, you can direct somebody to somebody else if you can't say it yourself. Let us care about the people we're talking to and the people they affect. And because of that, speak up.